Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. So my lab, we have been over the last, I would say, seven, eight years, really really go very, get very excited about the possibility using human proponent stem cells, including both human embryonic stem cells as well as induced proponent stem cells to build human embryo models and organ models as well. In fact, our goal is to develop phase four human embryo models or otherwise organ models, and especially for human embryo models, and try to drive their progressive development passing different developmental milestones. I'm talking about implantation, gastrulation, allowing them to enter early organogenesis. Therefore, such embryo models and the organ models, they will be more faithful and useful for different applications. So for this audience, I guess I don't need to talk too much about the importance of human proponent stem cell research. But nonetheless, we're using human proponent stem cells and entering this field, synthetic embryology. The emergence of synthetic embryology has been driven by a few different factors. So we are always curious, as a human being, ourselves, to understand the genesis of human being. But there are a lot of technical and ethical challenges, constraints in studying human development using human samples. We all understand that. There's also significant appreciation. There's interspecies divergence and the human development is somewhat different from many animals that we have been using studying in the lab. There's also significant drive to reduce the animal use in the lab for whatever purposes. In fact, it's also fair to say that there will be never sufficient embryonic tissues, either from human or animals, needed for quantitative studies. And there are a lot of limitations and, uh, of the existing models and tools. I'm talking about animal models. I'm also talking about models like organ-on-chip or organoids, if you're working with those models. So the recent advances and emergence of different technologies, including new stem cells, I'm talking about human stem cells, either embryonic stem cells, prepotent stem cells, or otherwise totipotent stem cells, or actual embryonic stem cells, they, they really bring up the excitement using the stem cells as building blocks to build synthetic models. So here you can see that the goal of synthetic embryology, let me just put it this way, aims to construct models of the entire embryo or otherwise a significant portion of the embryo in a dish using stem cells. And we're hoping that synthetic embryology and building faithful models of human embryo and organs will be very useful for, well, guided by developmental principles as well as bioengineering tools. It will offer superior fidelity, usability, and efficiency, reproducibility, and scalability. So you can see I'm an engineer here. You don't see these terms in many biology talks. But nonetheless, <laughs> okay. So here, I would like to give you a quick snapshot about what we are working on in my lab. In fact, you can see that, as I mentioned, we're focusing on early post-implantation development from implantation all the way to early organogenesis. 
we're building different type of models. So as you can see that from the cartoon here, and uh, this is the Zyger, and uh, through development, and it's going to develop into a blastocyst, and soon it's going to implant into the uterus, trigger the early post-implantation development. And soon after, the next developmental milestone is the gastrulation. The prepotent epiblast cell will undergo gastrulation, develop into three different germ layers. And importantly, each germ layer will be responsible for certain major organ development. So we understand that ectoderm will be responsible, for example, for neural tube development. So we have been building different models in the lab, and some of them have been published and have been very well recognized. The first one, as Ma mentioned, we have been known to be the lab working on amnion di differentiation and how amnion triggered human gastrulation. This is what we call amnion exact model, and we have published quite a few papers. I will even highlight the fact that this is the first 3D human embryo model. Uh, from my group. But more recently, more recently, and we have this unpublished work called Human Gastrulation Model, and uh, given the fact that it's not fully complete, the story, but we are very excited the fact that now we have this uh, called 3D whole, uh, more faithful human gastrulation model. You can see that we have the secondary yolk sac, and on the, on the other side, we have the, the amniotic sac and the franking uh, trilaminate disc-like structure. And again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into details to describe how we're going to, how we developed it. And so in my lab, we are taking two different approaches to push towards early organogenesis. One is to build embryo models as faithful as possible and as complete as possible, drive their progressive development towards early organogenesis. So the first two models here represent this effort. But we also understand that, as I mentioned, each gender after gastrulation will be responsible for certain major organ development. So how can we, we ask the question, can we bypass certain developmental events? I'm talking about implantation, maybe even gastrulation, and guide the organization differentiation of certain germ layers, then drive them, I guess, towards later organogenic events and form organ rudiments. So we're building models of human neural tube development and somatogenesis, even gut tube development. And for the sake of time, I will just highlight one recent work, and uh, it's under revision with nature. And we're trying to build, as I mentioned this morning, to certain folks here. And let me just put it this way. We're really trying to recapitulate the entire, uh, the development of the entire central nervous system. Okay. So going back to my, the first model and uh, the first approach, how we can build the more faithful, complete human embryo uh, models. So before I provide technical details about our approaches. So let me just give you some more information about early human development and early post-implantation human development. You can see from the picture here. So this is the blastocyst containing the epiblast surrounded by trophectoderm as well as there's underlying hypoblast. Soon after implantation, you can see from the cartoon, there's a cavity spontaneously form, forming as the center of the epiblast compartment, and this is what we call amniotic cavity. And soon after, you can clearly see that as symmetry-breaking events, the prepotent epiblast cells next to the invading trophectoderm, they will spontaneously differentiate, forming the amniotic ectoderm. And soon after, and you can see that the remaining prepotent cells as prospective posterior end of the epiblast, they start to undergo gastrulation, differentiate, and eventually develop into the three germ layers. And somehow between the implantation, but before gastrulation, 
we understand that, especially from studies using different animal species, we understand that there's also another important cell lineage called primordial germ cells. They will emerge in the implanting human embryo. And it turns out they are from different studies of different species, and people see different observations. And nonetheless, people believe that in, in the human, primordial germ cells will emerge either in the immune ectoderm or otherwise together with the gastrulating gastrulating cells. Okay, you can see that on the bottom, there are some sectional images showing the human embryos as the corresponding stages. You can clearly see that there's a cluster of human prepotent stem, oh sorry, the cluster of epiblast cells, and soon, sooner, uh, soon after, there's symmetry breaking, there's cavity formation, and you can see very clear uh, asymmetric structure, and soon after, there's gastrulation. There's gastrulating cells invading into the space between the epiblast and the underlying hypoplast. So our journey in this space, in this research direction, has been a very surprising and but very fulfilling journey. In fact, my lab was never, when we started day one, 2009, when I started my lab, we were never thinking about studying human development using human proponent stem cells. At that point, we were really just trying to understand what we call mechanobiology of human proponent stem cells. How the human proponent stem cells in an in vitro dish, in a dish, how they respond to the physical signals in the surrounding environment, and how we can leverage the mechanobiology of human proponent stem cells to improve their directed differentiation towards clinical relevant cell lineages. Somehow, through this process, I guess, during this investigation, and in one of the projects, and you can see conducted by my former PhD student, and who is now an associate professor in Tsinghua University through collaboration with my former collaborator, uh, Deb Gumichio. She has recently retired from the university, and her former postdoc, Ken Taniguchi, who is now assistant professor at Medical College of Wisconsin. So in this collaboration, somehow they developed some type of 3D culture, and for the sake of time, because this 3D system has been published extensively, so I will not provide technical details. So in this 3D culture, somehow even in the control condition, which means that we are not adding any exogenous differentiation factors into the culture. And you can see from the cartoon here, there's a small portion of the cell clusters, less than 10%. The cells will undergo very interesting morphogenetic events, including symmetry breaking, suggesting that there are something very interesting going on in the 3D culture. It's going to replay the video here. I'm going to walk through with you. Um, it's going to replay. Let's just watch. It's always fun to watch um, the video. So you can see the cell cluster, and soon after, there's a uh, there's cavity appearing as the center of the cavity. Oh, sorry, as the center of the colony. Then soon after, you start to see some cells as one pole of the cell colony. You can see they become squamous and flattened, suggesting they're differentiating. That's always the first evidence you want to look for. So indeed, through extensive molecular characterization and trying to understand what are the differentiating cells, and it turns out you can see that there's a clear molecular asymmetry, and the differentiating cells will upregulate TFAP2A and TFAP2C, while the remaining cells, as the other pole, the columnar pole, they remain expression for OCT4 and NANOC. So it turns out the TFAP2A, TFAP2C positive cells, let's just, for simplicity, let's just call them amine ectoderm like cells because we have done a lot of molecular characterization to identify their fate, identity. So also, it turns out in a subset of the cell colonies, in a subset of these 10% cell colonies, we start to see additional phenotypes. Let's watch the video here. You can see cavity formation, 
And soon after, the cells, you can see that as one pole becomes stronger, it's flattened. But what's most interesting in this video is the fact that the cells as the other pole, they start to, you can see that, delaminate, migrate away from the columnar pole. And so we looked into the, what are these migrating cells? It turns out they express bacteria and snail, and they lose expression for nanoc. And we understand that bacteria and snail, these are markers for early gastrulating cells. So really suggesting that this 3D culture, the cell colonies, even though low efficiency and uh, um, low efficiency, and they really exhibit phenotypes, I would say behaviors, mimicking early human peri-implantation development. But nonetheless, we also conducted some mechanistic studies trying, really trying to understand what are the intracellular signaling mechanisms and transcription factors driving the human proponent stem cells to differentiate into amine and ectoderm-like cells and based on the transcriptome data, for example. And uh, it turns out, as I mentioned, that only less than 10% of the cell clusters, they will form asymmetric structures. More than 90% of the structures of the cell colonies, they will just uniformly differentiate into amniotic ectoderm-like cells. So this system, in fact, is very useful for understanding amniotic genesis. So you can see the video here. The cells will just uniformly differentiate. So it turns out we identified BMP activity, BMP signaling as one of the upstream intracellular mechanisms driving amniotic genesis in the 3D culture. And you can see very clear phosphorus map nuclear staining in this staining image. And phosphorus MA is one of the, I guess, the downstream effectors for BMP signaling. And our observation here is quite consistent with the existing, I guess, knowledge of the primate host implantation development. And you can see BMP4 expression almost exclusively in the amniotic ectoderm in this pre-gastrulation monkey embryo. There's a lot more evidence now, and even from human embryos now, um, embryonic tissues suggesting upregulated BMP activity in the differentiating amniotic ectoderm. And uh, okay, so when we block BMP activity by using, say, inhibitors like nogging, and you can see that the differentiation of the amniotic ectoderm-like cells will just be inhibited. So given our background, I'm an engineer, and we're always thinking about how we can really bring in engineering tools to really make the model much, much more robust and controllable, therefore useful for downstream mechanistic studies or otherwise screening applications. So we decided to develop a microfluidic system, and you can see this is the, the top view of the microfluidic system, contains three different channels. The channel in the center is called gel channel, and uh, separated, and then on the top, there's a cell loading channel, and on the bottom, there's an induction channel. So what we do is the three channels are separated by what we call supporting post and the, the black boxes here in the center. So what we do is we just preload the, the center channel, the gel channel, with liquid gel. And as you know, during gyration, there's a surface tension, and you can see from the cartoon schematic here, the gyration of the gel autonomously allow the gel to form concave gel pocket between, each, between the adjacent supporting post. So this really gives us some advantages in terms of how we can coax the cells to form initial cell colonies in prescribed locations within each, I guess, each microfluidic device. So following the cartoon here, you can see that we load the cells into the cell loading channel and uh, then what we do is we tilt the device 90 degrees for five to 10 minutes, allow the cells to settle into each gel pocket by gravitational force. 
So after, afterwards, we gently flush out the remaining cells in the cell loading channel. So you can see from the cartoon, the cells form initial cell cluster. It also turns out, many of you might know, human proponent stem cells, they have this intrinsic luminogenic property. Once they form initial cell cluster, under suitable conditions, especially in 3D, for example, they form a lumen in the center, form a lumen. So you can see from the video here, this video captures synchronized development of five cell colonies in the same microfluidy device, and you can clearly see cavity formation in each cell colony. In this experiment, we are only using essential 6 and FGF2, and these are soluble factors, or I would say medium condition, and just promoting the growth and I would say growth and survival of human proponent stem cells. So we are not providing any inductive signals to drive them to differentiate. So therefore, the stem cells will remain prepotent. You can see very clear OCT4, NANOC, and SOX2 expressions in the cells. So for simplicity, let's just call them epiblast-like sac. All right. But the usefulness of this microfluidic system is the fact that now we can add exogenous inductive signals, differentiation factors, into different channels to control symmetry breaking, to control the progression of the development of this embryo-like structures. So what we do in the second set of experiment, as you can see from the, uh, from the schematic here, now we are adding BMP4 into the cell loading channel. So therefore, only, only the cells in each cell cluster directly exposed to BMP4 will upregulate BMP activity. That was the hypothesis. So indeed, it turns out this is a very effective strategy. The cells on the top level differentiate into m 9 actor, as you can see from the cartoon. Once the cells, some cells start to differentiate, I guess initiate the differentiation, or I would say initiate the developmental program, they will start sending out signals to the adjacent cells to tell them, hey, you guys also need to develop further continuously. So you can see from the cartoon, indeed, it turns out the the cells as the opposite pole, the prepotent cells, they will also start to undergo gastrulation-like events. So here, the video is going to replay. Let's just watch the video here first. Then I will go back to explain the uh, staining results. You can see synchronized development of five-cell colonies in, each, uh, in a single microfluidic device. And you can clearly see cavity formation. And you can see the flattening, and, uh, the flattening of the cells on the top. And soon after, the cells at the bottom, they just delaminate, migrate away, because they are undergoing gastrulation. And they are undergoing EMT, in fact, absolute mesenchymal transition. So this is the, uh, the cell colonies before the cells delaminate from the, uh, the bottom half. You can clearly see monocular asymmetry. Only the cells directly exposed to BMP4 will upregulate TFAP2A, while the remaining cells, they are positive for barcurie. And soon after, you can see that the barcurie-positive cells will just delaminate uh, from the bottom, and where the remaining, uh, the, the cells on the top, they will be positive for IL cell 1 and GATA 3. Again, IL cell 1 and GATA 3, these are another two uh, very good eminent actor like cell markers. So I mentioned that there's a very important cell lineage post implantation but before gastrulation, and very interesting and very important cell type, in fact, primordial germ cells. Because the primordial germ cells are precursor cells for sex cells, they have very significant interest to understand primordial germ cell development, and there are a lot of translational opportunities as well because people are interested in getting functional sex cells from prepotent stem cells. But nonetheless, as I mentioned, that in different animal species, primordial germ cell development, the origin of primordial germ cells has been significantly debated. Um, 
So you can see in monkey, SOC17 and TFAP2C, double positive cells, these are primordial germ cells, they emerge first in monkey in the immune ectoderm compartment. Well, in pig, as well as in mouse, in fact, you can see BLIMP1 and SOC17 double positive cells, they emerge together. In fact, they emerge together in the gastrulating cell population. So we decided to look into the presence or the emergence of primordial germ cell-like cells in our model and by stem cells for TFAP2C and SOC17. And double positive cells, we do see double positive cells. And we see some very interesting dynamics as well. Uh, you, you wouldn't be surprised. And it turns out majority of the primordial germ cell-like cells, they emerge first in our model in the immunoactivant compartment. Soon after, you can see that these double positive cells, they somehow accumulate as the junction between the immunoactivant compartment and the gas, uh, the epiblast-like compartment. And soon after, the primordial germ cell-like cells will just delaminate together with the gastrulating cells. So models are all useful, in fact. Well, I wouldn't say models are all useful. Some models are useful. Um, I hope all models are useful. Okay, it turns out models, especially models, when they are controllable and reproducible, they will be very, very useful tools for mechanistic studies. For example, I have been saying that I do think that the models developed from, for example, from my group, they will be very useful for study cell-cell interactions, how cells talk to each other, control each other's development. Or otherwise, all models will be very useful for study lineage development to understand, for example, the origin of primordial germ cells. I'll show you some examples. So this first example here, we're trying to understand the role of amnium in human gastrulation. Why this is an important question. So let's just take a look at the gastrulation in mouse. It turns out gastrulation has been studied extensively. I'm sure many of you are developmental biologists here. Gastrulation has been extensively studied, but in mouse we understand a lot more about mouse development than, any, uh, than human development. So in mouse, we know that gastrulation involving very intricate interactions between the epiblast and the surrounding actual embryonic lineages. There's a wing signal, nodal, and BMP. The, somehow, I guess, the interactions between the signals and drive the gastrulation in the epiblast. But we also know that now let's take a look at the human. Above human on the dorsal pole, next to the epiblast, you have the amnium tissue. So we have no information about the effect of amnium in gastrulation, but from our studies, we know that there are some inductive effects. The presence of the amnium will drive the progressive development of the epiblast. So we naturally, we ask the question, what's the role of amnium in gastrulation, human gastrulation? So this is the live image, uh, live cell assay, and somehow we have this reporter line, barcode reporter line, and basically we tag the barcode with fluorescent protein, and this is a reporter line from Velviver from UCSF, allowing us to monitor barcode activity. So you can see that the GFP positive cells, they will emerge first, always emerge first as the junction between the amnion ectoderm and the remaining epiblast. Then you can see the fluorescent signal will propagate to the rest of the epiblast compartment really suggesting that there's signal propagation in this case. Naturally, we decided to ask to conduct more detailed experiment to understand inductive effect of amnium uh, on human gastrulation. And we decided to do some co-culture assays, which is very simple. So you can see from the schematic, we differentiate human prepotent stem cells into amnion ectoderm-like cells by basing the cells in, uh, with BMP4 for 48 hours, driving them to differentiate. Then later, we remove BMP4 from the medium 
Then we added a second batch of undifferentiated human proponent stem cells to establish this co-culture. And as you can see that after 48 hours of co-culture, and all the cells, all the later added human proponent stem cells, you can see that they upregulate CDX2, they lose expression for nanoc, and they will upregulate expression for BRCA. So suggesting that they start to really upregulate transcription factors associated with gas relation. But somehow we understand that wind signaling is very important in gas relation and from animal studies. We decided to repeat the experiment, but now we are adding IWP2. You can see we are adding IWP2 into the co-culture. And so IWP2 is a specific inhibitor blocking wind secretion. So therefore, it has a significant inhibitor effects on both wing, uh, both canonical and non-canonical wing activities. So after we treat the cells, treat the co-culture with IWP2, you can see that we don't see the upper regulation of the CDX2 or bacteria anymore, and all the cells will remain uh, octophore positive and nanoc positive. So indeed, suggesting that the inductive effect from the amnion depending on wing secretion. So we decided to do a few more experiments using our microfluidic system. And you can see that the top panel here, this panel here, this is just control experiment. So we have the BMP4 in the top channel, and we have this molecular asymmetry, and the, the remaining epiblast-like cells will upregulate bacteria. But when we add IWP2, repeat this experiment, I, adding IWP2 into the culture, the bacteria expression will be gone. And when we further repeat the expression by using IWR1 now, and IWR1, as well as DKK1, another two inhibitors. These two inhibitors are known to be blocking components involved in canonical wind signaling. Somehow, the bacteria expression is not affected. That really suggesting, hinting that there might be some underappreciated non-canonical wind components in, in our system. And we're continuing looking into that. This is ongoing investigation. Okay, so the, our system is very, very controllable and uh, also compatible with downstream genomic analysis and such as single sound sequencing. And uh, so you can see that we can isolate the cells from the microfluidic device, perform single sound sequencing using 10x genomics. And you can see that this is the early time point and by day 48 hours, oh, sorry, by T equal 48 hours, you can see very clear separation between cell clusters uh, which is expected. So you can see the amnion-like cell population, and we have very big population of primordial germ cell-like cell population, and we have this gas-relating cell population, and it turns out they are all mesoderm-like. Mesoderm -like. So we can integrate the cell population, and you can see that this is an integrated data set, and uh, combining the data from three different time points, and we can calculate, we can perform on velocity uh, analysis, trying to really understand the lineage development. And why we were, in fact, uh, we were really trying to understand particularly where is the PGC coming from? How PGC-like cells develop in our model? Well, long story short, we don't have the answer yet. It remains very puzzling. But let's take a look of the, the three-dimensional a uh, uh, three-dimensional plot for the single sound sequencing data, we clearly see three different lineage passes from the prepotent cells. There's one lineage, the amnion-like cell development, and very clear. There's another lineage development, the gas-relating cell lineage development. There's the third one, PGC-like cell development. And it turns out there's a, there's a cluster, we, we believe that, there's this nascent amnion-like cell cluster. You can see that as early time point, 
This nascent amnion-like cell cluster contained a subpopulation of cells. Somehow they would decide to differentiate into primordial germ cell-like cells. And what are the underlying mechanisms? What are the transcription factors involved in that fate decision is still under investigation. The single-cell sequencing data, as you know, is quite powerful. It turns out it's also useful for us to understand cell-cell interactions in our model. And what we can do is we can use certain algorithms and, uh, and uh, analyze the single-cell sequencing data, especially different cell populations, what type of signaling ligands they express, what are the signaling receptors that they express, then try to, I guess, decide what type of interactions they, they will have between different cell pairs. So you can see that for different signaling events, I'm talking about BMP, non-canonical wing, and NADO here, you can see, particularly for BMP and the non-canonical wing, almost all cell populations, they will secrete certain ligands, or otherwise, the same, at the same time, they express receptors. So suggesting they both serving as resources for low signals. At the same time, they also receive low signals. But it turns out when we look into NADO, which is very, very interesting, only the gas-relating cells, the primary streak-like cells, these are the gas-relating cells, they are receiving the NADO signal. They are receiving the NADO signal. So suggesting that NADO signaling is very, very important for driving gas-relating cells, their development in our model. So therefore, we just knock out NADO, and very simple, and indeed, that effect, that really basically block the gas-relation-like events in the apiplast compartment. And our, our observation here is not surprising. It turns out, this observation, when people knock out NADO in mouse, that really affect gas-relation in the mouse. And this is one of the very successful early examples of the powerfulness of mouse genetics really from one of the pioneers, in fact, in developmental biology, uh, Elizabeth Robson. Uh, this paper published almost decades, a few decades ago. Again, showcased the powerfulness of mouse genetics. But now, hopefully, human genetics will be possible using human models. So I, I guess the, um, I understand that many people here are very interested to... to uh, I guess, human trophoblast development. So we decided also to look into, there's a lot of debate and confusion and these ongoing studies to thinking about human trophoblast development, amniotic ectoderm development, how, I, I think this is important, it's very important to really identify unique cell markers, unique markers that can help us to differentiate these two lineages. So we indeed, we put a lot of single-cell sequencing data set that have been published by different groups, especially from primate samples, I'm talking about in vivo samples, and identify lineage markers. So it turns out, indeed, we were able to identify some very useful markers to differentiate human trophoblastin and amnion ectoderm. And you can see that amnion will upregulate ISL1 and uh, GABRP. And uh, well, for trophoblast, we identify a few other markers, GCM1, F, uh, FABP3, and some other markers. And it turns out we identify those markers and these markers also have very good antibodies to use. That's the reason they should be very useful for the field. So you can see that we further validate the markers, how they can differentiate human trophoblast and amniotic ectoderm by using human blastocysts as well as monkey embryo samples. And for the sake of time, uh, because this has been published, I don't need to go through the details. But you can see, for example, ISL1 only marked amniotic ectoderm in this pre-gasulation monkey embryo, but not the trophoblast. So now I'm going to switch gear now. 
as I mentioned at the first part of my talk, to highlight how we can build faithful human embryo models and hopefully one day promote their progressive development past engastulation and to early organogenesis. I think we have a viable path moving forward. But now, of course, we all hope that eventually, maybe five, 10, day, uh, five, 10 years, we will get there to really see beating heart or something in a synthetic human embryo model. But at the same time, there might be a wishful thinking. So how we can bypass, maybe develop different alternative strategies, bypass certain developmental events, and to build faithful human organ models. So we understand that here, let's focus on the cartoon here. We understand that, for example, as I mentioned, major human organs, they all develop from different germ layers. For example, ectoderm is responsible for neural tube development. Endoderm is responsible for gut tube development. Mesoderm is responsible for soma and beating heart, human uh, cardiac development. So how we can leverage existing knowledge in development organogenesis to build faithful models of human organ. So if you take a look of all the developments of organs, they almost follow some simple transcript. Well, this is a transcript that I guess I envisioned as an engineer. Maybe it's a very simplified view, very simplified view, okay? So you have a sheet of naive embryonic precursor cells. Somehow through morphogenesis, they either fold, split, or through condensation, they form a blob, cluster. And then they form some type of 3D embryonic structures, say a tube, a tube. Then through inductive effects, we understand inductive effects and adjacent tissues, they will secrete soluble factors to drive the patterning of this three-dimensional embryonic structure. Then you have this patterned embryonic structures. Then different regions of the embryonic structures then be constrained by gene regulatory network. They differentiate into different images and they undergo continuous development. So following this transcript, for example, the central nerve system will develop through, say, a sheet of naive ectoderm cells. Through neuration, they form a neural tube. So neuration describes the, the folding formation of the neural tube. And we understand that embryonic induction, they are the notochord, they are non-neural ectoderm, and they will secrete, or otherwise, they are also rostral-caudal patterning signals from adjacent tissues. They will drive the patterning of the neural tube, divide it into brain and spinal cord regions. Okay? And eventually, the precursor cells in different regions of the neural tube, they will differentiate into different cell types. Same thing for the gut tube and respiratory and digestive system. So it turns out, as you may know, in fact, over the, over the last few decades, bioengineers, they have been developing a lot of useful tools, a lot of useful tools to really control the structure, I would say, to control the structure, the boundaries, and guided organization of cells and tissues. So I'm talking about people can easily control the extracellular matrix properties, their adhesive ligands, mechanical properties, and we can control very easily tissue shape either a colony of cells or otherwise a tubular structure, it doesn't matter. And we can superimpose soluble gradients using, for example, tools like microfluidics. Uh, to a certain extent, we can even control mechanical forces. We can stretch the tissues, compress the tissues, or otherwise we can even imagine that through printing technology. I'm talking about 3D printer, right? You can even start to control tissue-tissue assembly. 
And we all understand that these are very interesting, uh, useful, powerful tools and might be very useful to control tissue form and function. All right, just to highlight how we can leverage and follow this simple script, as I mentioned, for early organogenesis, I'm going to highlight neurotube development. We are building a human, whole human patent, a fully patented human neurotube development model. So let's take a look at this CS12 human embryo. This is a, a human embryo towards the, first, towards the end of the first month's pregnancy. And you can see that from the head to the tail, the length is about four millimeter. And when you take a section of the spinal cord region, and this is the neural tube, it's, a, it's an over-shaped tubular structure flanked by the somites. And the, the, the diameter is about 200 micron up to 400 micron. That's the, it's a tubular structure. There's a cavity in the middle. So as I mentioned that, after neuration, let's assume that you have a naive neural tube. They start to perceive inductive signals from adjacent tissues. So we are talking about, for example, FGFA and WIN. There's also retinic acid signaling. And very important, divide the neural tube into forebrain, midbrain, hindbrain, and spinal cord. There are also inductive signaling centers. I'm talking about epidermis and nautical cord. Establish anti-paramorphogen gradients involving BMP and Sony hedgehog. And this anti-paramorphogen gradient perpendicular to the neural tube. Very important for dorsal ventral patterning of the neural tube. So how we can, so this is existing knowledge, a template from in vivo studies, animal models. So how we can recapitulate in vitro using bioengineering tools. So think about this way. Let's assume that we can use engineering tools to generate human prepotent stem cell colonies with defined geometry. In this case, an elongated, rectangular-shaped cell colony of human prepotent stem cells. We can guide their development into a tube. Okay, we guide them development into a tubular structure. Then, let's assume that we can superimpose controllable morphogen gradients. And in this case, the first morphogen gradient is along the tubular lens, along the lens of the tube. So later, let's assume that we can further superimpose morphogen gradients perpendicular to the tube lens, okay, for dorsal ventral patterning. So that's exactly what we decide to do and what we like to achieve. And we, decide, uh, we, we build a very successful microfluidy device. It's, it's, it, it is very, very powerful, in fact. So this is a microfluidy device. It contains three different channels. Let's just focus on the zooming picture here. It contains three different channels. In the center channel, we print we use certain type of technology called microcontact printing, allow us to print adhesive molecules on the surface of glass cover slip. So therefore, when we see the human proponent stem cells into the center channel, you can imagine that human proponent stem cells will only attach to the adhesive islands from the initial, from the initial cell colony, rectangular shaped cell colony. Then, then we load gel into the center channel to provide a three-dimensional cultural condition for the human proponent stem cells. As I mentioned, that human proponent stem cells, they have intrinsic luminogenic properties, especially when they embed in 3D culture. They just form lumens spontaneously. I will show you the data. Then we have the top channel and bottom channel. They're just useful for us to add soluble factors. So to apply, we, this same device will be useful for us to establish morphogen gradients as well. You can see from the cartoon here, by adding soluble factors into the two reservoirs connecting the center channel. Now you can imagine that only the two reservoirs connecting the center channel, we add soluble factors. 
or we add different soluble factors. You can imagine that we can establish chemical gradient along the length of the tube. Then later on, we can add the different soluble factors into the top channel and the bottom channels. So therefore, you can imagine that that allows us to establish morphogen gradients perpendicular to the length of the tube. So it turns out this is a very effective strategy for forming human proponent stem cell tubes. So you can see that this is the video capturing synchronized development of six cell colonies of human proponent stem cells forming elongated tube. And you can clearly see this uh, over time, at the beginning, there's small cavities, small cavities forming along the length of the tube. Eventually, the cavities were fused. And by day four, day five, there's an elongated single lumen along the entire length of the tube. All right. So what we do next is then we, as I mentioned, that we can add soluble factors now. And in the first example here, we're adding DUCMAT inhibitors and into the left reservoir connecting the center channel. Then at the same time, we're adding chiron, FGFA, and rationic acid. Chiron is a wing activator. So to establish wing FGFA, rationic acid, morphogen gradients along the length of the tube. So we understand that, just to provide some background information, the patterning of the neural tube is uh, there are a lot of very useful canonical markers for, for example, Rothschild caudal patterning of the neural tube. We understand that OTX2 is a very good marker for forebrain and midbrain. There's also FGFA mark the midbrain-hindbrain boundary, which is a very important secondary organizer called asmic organizer. And then we have Hox genes, very important patterning signals, or well, transcription factors to pattern uh, hindbrain and spinal cord, Hox genes, okay, uh, in the spinal cord and the hindbrain. Importantly, as the caudal end of the spinal cord, there's a very important bipotent cell population called the neuromastermal progenitor cells neuromastermal progenitor cells. I will touch on it uh, later. So indeed, after a few days of rostral caudal patterning by using wing FGFA and rationic acid, you can, very clearly, you can clearly see pattern gene expression for OTX2 and Hox genes. OTX2 followed by Hox B1, Hox B4, and Hox C9. Very well-patterned tissues. And this is uh, another, I guess, stitched image highlight, I guess, uniform patterned uh, gene expression for six different tissues from the same microfluidy device, okay, in the same microfluidy device. So as I mentioned that, Rothschild caudal patterning leads to the development of a very unique population called neuromastermal progenitor cells. This is a very interesting population because people believe that it's very important for caudal spinal cord development as well as for somite development. It's a very unique population, in fact, and there are very good markers for it. It turns out this population will upregulate markers associated with mesoderm. They express brachyurid, they will also, at the same time, exp- retain expression for SOX2, which is uh, ectoderm marker. Um, you can see this, indeed, when we stain the cells for this markers, SOX2, CDX2, and Barkery, we see a very unique triple positive population at the caudal end of the tube. And we even conducted live imaging and by, again, leveraging the Barkery reporter line. And indeed, we see this changing emergence of this population. Now, in fact, we have ongoing project in my lab. We are developing a lineage uh, reporter line uh, tracing system and try to really monitor the, the progenies of this neuromastermal progenitor cells, how they contribute to the caudal spinal cord development. So really, the powerfulness of this microfluidy device is not just for rostral caudal patterning. In fact, we can further achieve dorsal ventral patterning as well for 
either brain region or otherwise spinal cord region. So what we do is, uh, the reason why this is important, because we understand that dorsal ventral patterning of the neural tube, they show distinct features in the brain and the spinal cord, which is rather it's easy to understand. For example, for the forebrain, if you just take sectional and forebrain, and this is a very early development, okay? So the forebrain will be patterned into patterning and subpatterning regions. They are good markers. And in the spinal cord, we understand that when you section the DV patterning leads to pattern gene expression for very, very important transcription factors constraining their downstream development. And at the same time, there's also very important neural crest cells that will delaminate from the dorsal pole of the, uh, the neural tube. So what we, what, we try to, what we do here now, after rostral caudal patterning, we just add one more step for dorsal, uh, after rostral caudal patterning, we add one more step to achieve dorsal ventral patterning. You can see from the cartoon, we are adding BMP4 into the top channel. We are adding retinic acid and the SAG. SAG is a, is a agonist for Sony Hedgehog signaling to achieve uh, anti-parallel morphogen gradients perpendicular to the neural tube. Then at a certain point, in this case, day nine, we just section the tissues. And by day nine, unfortunately, the forebrain tissue is not patterned yet, but I will show you uh, better data and over time. And you can imagine that. But by day nine, we already start to see dorsal ventral patterned spinal cord. You can see clearly see dorsal expression for PAX3. And uh, also, you start to see neural crest cells delaminating from the dorsal toe. And I will come back to the spine, uh, neural crest cells because neural crest cells are just amazing. Then on the ventral side, you can see clearly oligo 2 expression and NKX 6.1 expression. We can prolong the culture of the tissue and try to really achieve dorsal ventral pattern in the forebrain regions. And indeed, let's zoom in, take a look of the expression for PAC6, DLX2, and NKX2.1. And we clearly see pattern expression, suggesting that DV patterning in the forebrain region is also achievable in our system. Okay? All right. And at the same time, you can see that the SOX10 positive neural crest cells continue to delaminate from the dorsal pole of the neural tube. Well, we have the, the tissues and how we can further authenticate besides beyond just a few canonical markers. Um, again, we can just generate transcriptome data and we can perform comparative transcriptome analysis and really to authenticate and uh, uh, authenticate the, the structures and tissues. And just for the sake of time, I don't have time to really go through the details. I think it's time for me to really wrap up. Uh, unfortunately, I do have a few important uh, data to show two more slides containing data. What we can do with the tissue? Well, there are a few directions we're uh, pursuing, and one is to study knowledge development. I, I mentioned that we're trying to generate report, knowledge report lines to allow us to study how NMP population, your mesodermal progenitor population, contribute to caudal spinal cord development. We're also trying to study neural crest cells. Why? It turns out neural crest cells are very easy target for us to trace. Once they become specified in our tissue, you can imagine that they just delaminate, migrate away. It's very easy for us to follow them. It's very easy for us to monitor their dynamics. So it also turns out neural crest has very interesting dynamics. There's a very well-known behavior called axial position-dependent neural crest development. It turns out the neural crest cells as the brain, they have very strong tendency to differentiate into 
for mesenchymal fates, say craniofacial tissues. But the neural crest cells in the spinal cord, they will lose that. They don't differentiate into, say, mesenchymal lineages. So we decided to look into different lineage markers for neural crest cells along the rostral caudal axis. Indeed, you can see that only the cells, neural crest cells, as the cranial, or sorry, as the rostral end, they will upregulate twist one, which is a mesenchyme marker. And well, the cells, neural crest cells, as the caudal end, and they will upregulate, say, uh, FOX2B, and this is sympathetic, uh, this marker for sympathetic neurons. All right, just the last, uh, uh, last story here. So now, in fact, we are trying to use the synthetic neural tube model to study disease. Uh, it turns out one of the, one of the diseases we deci decide to trace is to, uh, is charge syndrome. It's, it's a very well known, in charge syndrome, there's defective cranial neural crest development. That's defective neural crest development. And for example, here, using animal models, for example, when you knock down CHD7, and it, it, it turns out CHD7, oh, charge syndrome is perfect for us to study as well. Why? Because it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's mediated by a single mutation of a single gene, uh, a mutation of a single gene, CHD7. It's perfect for us. And at the moment, obviously, you can even say that, hey, why not study autism? Well, autism is polygenic. It's not as easy. And it turns out, for example, when people knock down CHT7, they clearly observe defective neural crest migration. And many of the phenotypes exhibited by charge syndrome, and they show defective craniofacial defects, suggesting there's involvement of uh, neural crest cells. Indeed, when we use the patient-derived uh, iPS cell line uh, from charge uh, syndrome patients, and compare them to the isogenic control, and you can see we clearly see very drastically different neural crest migratory behaviors between these two population of uh, cells, neural crest cells. Okay, with that, I would like to close my talk. I think it's time for me to wrap up. Uh, this is just my group, um, some, some very talented postdocs and graduate students, and the alumni of my group and my collaborators here, and these are the funding resources. With that, I would like to close my talk. Thank you very much for your attention. So as I mentioned, hinted, all models are around, but some are useful. Um, <laughs> Well, we're hoping that some of the models we are, develop, uh, we are developing will be useful and we'll be very happy to share any models we have been developing with any one of you. If you're interested, just let me know. Thank you so much. Amen. Fantastic talk. Um, and uh, Alex from Water here. I'm so sorry I, I, I can't meet with you later in the day, but people from my lab will be meeting with you. So this is a really beautiful work. I'm, I'm very interested on uh, uh, the recreation of the entire nervous system in your model. And one constraint that I see, it is the fact that you are using this chamber. So you, you show us that you can, you can go through like 21 days. Um, can we push it further? Can we keep it uh, for several months? Uh, do we need to remove from the chamber for these things to, to continue to grow? And I imagine as a, as a human model system, this would be quite large. So how do you envision that? Indeed, I, I forgot to mention that. You can see, in fact, even from the cartoon here, in fact, at some point, like say, we captured the tissues in the microfluidic environment in a chamber, confined chamber, up to say day 12, day 14, we do take them out then embed them in gel checks droplet, and which is a very common method used for bring, uh, prolonged the culture of brain organ noise. So the beauty of this is, uh, as, you, as you can imagine, that the patterning can be achieved in 
the patterning after early neural patterning, I guess once that can be achieved within a certain period of time, and that would be only needed for a certain period of time, those morphogen signals. Indeed, we can take the tissue out from the microfluid device, prolong their culture, and for downstream, say, neurogenesis, for example. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very durable. That's what we are working on right now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as you point out, right, that every model is um, imperfect in some way. This is super exciting. Um, but I'm wondering when you when you dissociate to single cells and and um, compare transcriptomes. I think you started to kind of look at that, but um, but didn't have time to present it. I'm I'm curious, um, kind of you know at you know in these these um, at this stage, what to what degree like the cells um, you know somewhat recapitulate known cell types and and what and do you see unique cell types right that you can't quite describe right now um, yeah we can take another look of the the single cell sequencing data here I guess um, indeed in fact we, when we for example we we can collect the cells um, from our synthetic tissue at different time points say day four day nine and day 21 and you can see from the the, uh, the integrated data set. Uh, so it turns out our day four synthetic neural tube compared best with mouse E8.25, and our day 21 compared best with mouse E11.5. Uh, this is not surprising because from E8 up to E11, E12, that's really where the early neural patterning happens. Uh, then going back to your question about different cell lineages, cell types, do we see some surprising cell lineages? Uh, or, or, or even otherwise unexpected cell lineages. I wouldn't say so, um, but we were very happy to see really a very broad spectrum of cell lineages. And because this is something very interesting, you can see that we have forebrain cells, midbrain cells, asthmic organizer, which is really the, the, the secondary signaling center between midbrain and hindbrain. Then hindbrain, spinal cord, we have even roof plate, and we have floor plate cells, then we have neural crest cells, then we have neurons. And within the neuron population, as you would imagine that, indeed, by, I would say, even by day 21 in our system, we start to see a lot of different types of neurons, including both inhibitory neurons and excitatory neurons. And, uh, yes, and uh, it would be fun, I guess, to really start to see how they continue to develop, integrate, and... Uh, I actually have a question going back to your uh, amnion and PGC uh, data that you showed. You mentioned that uh, there's a subset of, is it the amnionic ectoderm cells that you think are precursors to the PGC? Is that, is that unique? Because that's very different, right, from mouse. So is that, or, or I wondered also whether, can you, can you actually differentiate between that versus kind of epiblast-derived cells migrating down the amnion and then developing into PGC? Mm. So I think I need to make it clear. We don't think that the, the amnion ectoderm cells, uh, some of them are precursor cells for PGC cells, no. Uh, but somehow in, when we name the cells, we, have, we named one population, for example, at earlier time points, we, call this, we just call this nascent amnion-like cells. But doesn't mean that these are the cells they are committed or they are, they, are, they, are, they, are, they are destined to become, all of them will become amnion-like cells. But it turns out this population of cells, as you can see even from, from the single-cell sequencing data, they share they are a lot of, it's really, 
the, uh, they share a lot of similarity, transcriptal similarity with, uh, with all cell populations, all the other cell populations. And how to really tease out the, un the, fundamental, uh, the very fundamental question, what are the, what's the mechanisms, what's the gene reactivate network and dictate PGC dif uh, differentiation uh, from this seemingly simple system. Um, well, not still not simple enough. Um, we don't know. We really don't know. We have a few hypotheses. We have a few transcription factors in mind. Um, but besides that, I, I can't say more than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just a, some, some cells there. Yeah. I'll take a few questions from online. I'm going to combine these. It's more uh, two, two technical questions. One is uh, how do you control for, for diffusion of various factors when you add them so that you can be certain that when the factor is added, it really is restricted in its action to the particular region you are interested in? And then the second question, which is, I guess, related to that, is... How are, you, how are you able to tie a particular factor to a particular structural change? Mm -hmm. So this is a great question. I guess first is, uh, I should mention that the morphogen gradients, in fact, it turns out, our, this is a microfluidic device, and the soluble factors, say, retinic acid, FGFA, and wind molecules, were adding to the, to the microfluidic devices. So they diffuse pretty fast through some simple calculation. In fact, we, we have done a lot of characterization as well. The stable linear gradient can be established by these soluble factors within, I would say, a few hours. Within a few hours, so which also means that all the cells, more or less, they're exposed to a static morphogen gradient over time. A static morphogen gradient, because the cells they are embedded in gel. As I mentioned, that after initial cell colony formation, we add gel into the center channel, so there's no active fluid flow. There's no shear stress. Experience, uh, the cells will not be exposed to external shear stress. And this, uh, the, the second question about how do we know different soluble factors, morphogen signals, they are responsible maybe for different structures. I, I guess first, um, the reason we choose these different molecules is based on in vivo knowledge. People know that, say, FGFA, wind, retinic acid, they are all very important as this in vivo context for, say, rostral caudal patterning, where uh, BNP and the Sony Hatchwell, they're very important for DV patterning, dorsal ventral patterning. So that's the reason we decided, to, uh, we, we decided on these uh, factors. Does that mean that these factors really represent the, the complexity in vivo? I doubt about it, and I wouldn't say so. Um, yeah, and, but there's room, I guess you can even argue that there might be room for further optimization depending on the questions you want to ask. Let me put it this way, why this is important. Because at this point, you can see that the caudal end, the caudal end of our system, the spinal cord region, really only express HOX-C9. That's not really the most caudal end you can think about. There's a lot of, say, HOX-10, HOX-13 genes. We are not detect detecting them at the moment. So how we can optimize the structures and uh, soluble factor uh, gradients to achieve further caudal regions. Um, that's another, uh, that's ongoing optimization, I guess, uh, uh, project that can be pursued. 